You're listening to the KC Food Guys Podcast. Welcome to the KC Food Guys Podcast. Fred and I have been talking about doing this for quite a while, and it's finally here. But before we dive in, let me give you a little history and what we plan to do with the podcast. KC Food Guys started back in December of 2014, and we've been doing restaurant reviews ever since. Plus, we've added a few new food guys along the way. We're best known for our KC barbecue bracket that happens during March Madness, Uh, We started that two years ago, pitting 64 Kansas City barbecue restaurants against each other and crowning a champion in head-to-head matchups. But now we're going to branch out into podcasts as well. So we look forward to bringing you interviews with Kansas City restaurant owners, food insiders, and maybe a KC celebrity or two. Eric Hosmer, Eric Stone Street, I'm looking for you here. Hopefully we can do that from time to time. In addition, we'll do a few uh, restaurant reviews and maybe a little bit of back-and-forth banter between the food guys. With this being our first episode, we'd love to get your feedback. Just shoot us a Facebook message, leave us a comment on Facebook site or on the website, send us a Twitter or Instagram comment. Lastly, if you can email us any feedback, we'd take that as well. You can do that at steve at kcfoodguys.com. And on any of the platforms, just search for KC Food Guys and you'll find us. So with our first podcast episode, I decided I'd start with an interview with Rob McGee. He's owner and executive chef of Q39 Barbecue. One of the reasons I chose Rob for our first interview is that Q39 is a bit of the catalyst for why KC Food Guys exists in the first place. Back in 2014, after a few visits there, uh, Fred and I were discussing barbecue at length uh, after lunches at work, and we decided to go ahead and start up a blog at that time. We were so amazed by the barbecue at Q39 that we thought, you know, let's just put our thoughts on paper, and that's kind of how the website was born. We'll get more into Casey Food Guy's history in a future episode. So back in late July, I sat down with Rob uh, from Q39, and we covered a number of topics which I think you'll enjoy hearing about. We covered with his start in culinary, we expanded into his barbecue startup, and then we also covered the launch of the restaurant and his future expansions, plus a number of other topics along the way. We cover a lot of ground, and I hope you'll enjoy hearing Rob's story and the Q39 story. And I think there's something here for everybody. So sit back, relax, and take a listen. Well, this is Steve Rule with the KC Food Guys podcast. I'm here with Rob McGee, executive chef and owner of Q39. Appreciate your time today, Rob. Thanks for joining us. You bet. What a pleasure. So what we'd like to do is just kind of go back a little bit into your history. And I wanted to find out from you kind of where you got started uh, interested in food and cooking. Boy, a long, long, long time ago. So back in high school, I did an apprenticeship to figure out if I wanted to get into the culinary field. I actually worked at a Ramada Inn and decided, okay, well, let's do that culinary school thing. So 
So in 84, um, I ended up enrolling into the Culinary Institute. Graduated in February of 86. And uh, from there, I've moved all around the country. How did you decide that you wanted to go to culinary school? How did you choose the Institute of America in New York? Did you know you wanted to get away? Or how did that come about? Well, you know what? I was always a kid at home that wanted to go wherever I wanted and hang my hat wherever I wanted. I was just looking forward to get out. So picking a profession like culinary, somebody's got to eat somewhere in this world. So I uh, thought that was a great way. Uh, uh, I thought that was a profession that I would consider trying uh -huh. to figure out how I could travel the United States or Hawaii or overseas. And then when we moved to New Jersey, when I worked at we actually stayed at that same Ramada Inn. Okay. I thought it was the neatest thing. Um, we had steak and lobster, and then we had a reception. We went there. So I really thought what they did was really interesting to me. So that's when I did an apprenticeship just to find out if I really liked it. And uh, I did. I fell in love with the industry, and I've been doing it ever since, and it's been fantastic. So what would you suggest to somebody who is considering culinary school? What advice would you give them, and, and how would you help them, or what would you suggest to them in choosing a culinary school? Well, I think the first thing they need to do is have some experience before they go. Find out if it's really worth what they want to do. If you're going to go to the Culinary Institute, you're looking at about $85,000 for their two-year program. And if you went to their extended program, management program, just go ahead and tack on another 85 on that. So to spend all that money, make sure you really want to do it. So if you're here locally, some of the things that are offered if you're in Shawnee Mission or Blue Valley School Districts is you can go to Broadmoor and do an apprenticeship there. They have a great pro program there. You can do up to three years. So not only your sophomore, junior, and senior year, uh, you can enroll in that. It is a really good taste of what culinary is all about. They run restaurants on Wednesdays. Uh, my daughter, Katie McGee, went there and did it two years. Uh, she was very successful and she went to the Culinary Institute. When she graduated there, she came right here. We've got her on the line right now as a sous chef. Um, she picked the right profession. She loves what she's doing. She cares about what she's doing. So really making sure that they're, that somebody gets a feel before they jump in the business. What was the most difficult part of culinary school for you? I don't think it was ever difficult because my passion was about cooking. So ASIN classes were easy because I loved learning. I think if you probably put me in an automotive uh, course when I really needed to be in culinary, I'd probably have a real tough time getting through that school. In culinary school versus now, what were kind of some of your favorite ingredients to cook with then and what is it now? Well, let's see. When you when you graduate the Culinary Institute, they are well introduced into so many different concepts and all over the world. So French cooking, they really pound into you. German cooking, Italian cooking, American cuisine. Um, that's why they have all these different restaurants up there, like you know their Italian restaurant. They've got the American Bounty. They've got you know they had the Escaffier when I was up there. Now it's called uh, Paul Bocuse's restaurant. Um, so they really introduce you to all different cuisines. Which one did I like? Let's see. I liked them all. Um, I ended up and I graduated school, gravitated a little bit towards Italian, but have been, you know, it, that's the greatest thing about working in hotels, which I spent most of my career, is that you used everything that you learned in the culinary. Uh, what, did, what did I like to do? Yeah, don't get me wrong. I love those French sauces thrown in with butter. 
Um, you know, if you would ask me to do a Chateaubriand with morel stuffed with foie gras, topped with a nice, beautiful Perigodine sauce, that's right up my alley. If you told me to do an ahi tuna, sesame, black and white sesame encrusted tuna with wasabi and a lemongrass sauce, served with a nice sushi rice, uh, and then maybe a little stir-fried veg with it, dynamite. I used to get really creative with some of that stuff. I've done anything from uh, egg rolls stuffed with filet mignon. Wow. Um, so when it came out, you've got... I'm signing up for that. Yeah, <laughs> filet mignon with rice and, and you know, served with a beautiful dipping sauce. So we would get very creative. But yes, French influence always end up some way, somehow, interlined in every cuisine. So now how did you then kind of get into barbecue? How did you get started there? Okay, so back to French, went through Italian, ended up in Denver. Um, I got job transferred to Kansas City. The one thing I really enjoy in every city, and I can, and I don't have a problem moving because I can get acclimated really quick because I learned how. Learn what the city's about. Find a passion outside or a hobby outside of, of your work, and then you'll meet other people, and you know hopefully it's a good uh, you know a good activity outside of work. So I got into this thing called barbecuing here. All of a sudden, I lived right down the street. I lived in Lenexa. I was right down the street from the Lenexa barbecue. Me and my friends said, hey, why don't we do it? Sounds great. We went out there, had a blast. I think we came in 13 in brisket. And, oh, wow, and, you know, right we, out the gate. Right out the gate. Felt pretty good about it. I don't think we even took home any ribbons, but we had a good time. So I would say for the first, I don't know, three three years, we probably had so much fun. Uh, winning wasn't important at one point. Uh, it can I'll, be that way on the circuit. Well, it, it, can, <laughs> it can, and we did. Once that was done, um, I said to myself, well, let's take it serious and see what happens. So, What year did you start Lunexa Barbecue? When was the first year that you did that? 2002 is when I started off. Okay. So I think my first grand champion, which was uh, KCBS certified over 50, was in 06 at Osage City. And then by 07, we developed our own sauces, all different lines of sauces. We implemented that into 2007, where we ended up winning. Did a lot of that French background with the sauces it influence the barbecue? Great question. One of my ingredients comes from Europe. Okay. We bring it over by pallets. Uh, my barbecue sauce is probably the most expensive barbecue sauce in the city. So if I you ask it. me, why don't I sell it in supermarkets? <laughs> it's because it's it's uh, at a price point that most um, people won't won't stomach. It's up there, okay. so it would have to charge anywhere from ten to thirteen dollars a bottle. But you can come here and get it for you know seven ninety nine. So that way you don't have to pay for the shipping and the broker costs and all the rest. So we decided we're just gonna go ahead and sell it at the store. We did strike a deal to do it at the barbecue store. Um, so they do keep it on hand and their price is actually pretty reasonable. Now Munch and Hogs, was that the team name from the beginning? Did it change to that? And where did it come from? Well, I actually worked at the Hilton and it was Munch and Hogs at the Hilton for many years. They helped sponsor me to do these. One of the things was to put the Hilton name. So as I went out, and learn more and more about barbecue, we implement that into our menus to the point where we probably sold about 60% of all banquets was barbecue. And then in the restaurant, we probably served, I don't know, at least 50% barbecue uh, for a hotel. So what we did is we did a little paradox change in the hotel to getting known for barbecue, not just prime rib and baked potato. Now, in all those competitions, what were some of your favorite moments, your favorite contests to cook at, and then do you still compete? 
great questions. I think probably was my favorite was winning Osage City, you know, on yeah, my first the time. First one. I mean, that was pretty exciting. The most memorable uh, barbecue contest was definitely when I went to Las Vegas okay. uh, and won the uh, large barbecue contest out there. So it was the biggest pot I ever took, took awesome. in. Was that a starting point for Q39? Was that already in the plans? That was towards the end. Okay. Um, you know, when we started winning back in 07, I mean, we were winning a lot. Um, you know, we made it to the Jack Daniels after 07. Uh, we, we won our uh, uh, seven grand champions. I think we ended up doing nine before we went. So year after year, we just kept getting better and better. So that was a lot of fun. But you know what? I don't think there's a contest out there that wasn't enjoyable. Unless it was 102 degrees and we didn't have any air conditioning before I got my RV. As you started going through the circuit, we got deep into barbecue. What's kind of the most important thing that your weekend warrior should know about cooking barbecue from your perspective? You know, it's fine tweaks and being real with yourself when you hand in the food. Don't always blame it on the judges. Be real with yourself. Was your chicken really cooked right? Was the skin bite through? Was it juicy? Or was it juicier other times when you cook it? Did you really make sure it was perfect before it went in? If it wasn't, make the adjustments for the next week. Make minor tweaks, don't go major, unless you're an executive chef, which I did a lot, but uh, that was for fun and games. I had a great time throwing the kitchen sink at the judges. But if you're very consistent and you make little tweaks to improve process improvement, by the time you're done with 10 contests, you should be on your well off, on your way to do very well. As a trained chef, what advantages, there's probably a lot of advantage that gives you over some of the other uh, competitors, but what would you say is the main one that being a, a trained chef gives you? Well, you know, techniques of cooking is very important. Um, how to cook something to the right temperature, making sure it's ready. So taking how you cook barbecue, which is a complete unique way of dealing with meat, and then after I learned how to do that, then I was able to imp implement different processes. So, you know, how do you do a brisket? How do you maintain the most moisture in a brisket? You know, do you rest the brisket with au jus in it for the first hour so it actually soaks it back up? That's what you would do for like a pot roast if you were to learn that at a school uh, or any place. If you take it out right away, it's gonna be dry pot roast. If you let it soak in it and cool down, it's gonna be a nice moist pot roast. So brisket's not that different than pot roast, but you've got to implement the braising processes back into it. Remember, you can always add flavor, but you can never add moisture. So at the end, when you're ready to take it out, if you think you lost some flavor, put it back on the brisket. It's not too hard. Dry it up in the smoker, it'll crisp, it'll bark right back up again, then add your sauce, now you've got a moist, flavorful brisket. I think the other thing that's really important is that I developed all my sauces and rubs. Layers of flavor is the key to winning a barbecue contest. So if you're tasting a piece of chicken, you should be able to taste the sauce, you should taste the rub, you should taste the chicken, and it should be cooked to perfection. So it's gotta be moist, it's gotta have a bite through skin, and then all of a sudden you'll hear that first place, munching hogs, or your teammate. So as you were going through there, you started winning some. At what point did you think, I've got a restaurant coming? Is it? How did that? How did that come about? Where did where did you make that turn? Is like I want to do a restaurant. You know, when I was at the Culinary Institute, my goal was always either number one was to get on TV and be like the frugal gourmet. Yeah, okay. that's that uh, shows my age a little right. bit. Um, but uh, 
Uh, found out that wasn't my quest in life, uh, but I also wanted to open up a restaurant. So either or I wanted to do. So through the whole time, for 30 years, I was trying to figure out what kind of restaurant I could open. Yeah, I made great seafood dishes, I made great French cooking, I made great Italian cooking, but what was really going to hit it? Mm -hmm. And I got into this barbecue thing with a ton of trophies, a ton of, ton of grand champions, so instant recognition was there if I opened up a restaurant. Three years ago, four, or four years ago, I was working at the Hilton, a new company came in, and their vision was different than mine. Not that it was bad, not that it was good for me. I like to make everything from scratch. They wanted to take a different direction. So I said, heck, it's time to open up, open up a restaurant. Saved enough money mm -hmm. from working at the uh, hotel and all those grand champions. We'd always take the money and put it into a restaurant pot. And that pot would be ready to brew so to make a nice uh, uh, open up a restaurant. So I ended up stopped working there and I didn't work for nine months and the only thing I did was concentrate opening up this restaurant. Everything I wanted in a restaurant that I've been taking notes for the past 30 years was implemented into this restaurant. So the brick on the walls, the cement on the floor, the open ceilings, a couple TVs near the bar, open kitchen, everything made from scratch, uh, even a separate room that you could do banquets. So this is 30 years of rolling it through your head. And constantly updating to date. So obviously what I thought was really good back 30 years ago is completely outdated from what my vision was by the time I opened up my restaurant. So a garage door, outside, outside seating, uh, you know, to-go area was never on my radar screen. I put it in as an afterthought. I got to tell you, next restaurant, it's going to be twice as big. The food's so great. I mean, if you can't get in, you're going to get it to go. That's <laughs> what happens. <laughs> so what are some of the things that happen behind the scenes here that make Q39 such a success? And maybe some things that you didn't plan on that it's like, wow, I'm so glad I did that. You know, I think we're really successful. There's three key elements to running a restaurant. Number one is the environment. Is it inviting? Does it feel good? You know, is it clean? My restaurant here, you wouldn't call a barbecue joint. You would call it a barbecue restaurant. Completely agree. Yes. So, and don't get me wrong, barbecue joints have their place in this marketplace, but that's not what we're after. Mm -hmm. um, so it's full service and a full bar. Number two is you're going to have to have great food. Okay, so the food that you make needs to be chef-inspired. Um, this restaurant is definitely chef-influenced all the way through. So not only is all the barbecue made competition style, but we not only make it for lunch, but we make a whole nother batch for dinner. So I've gone to a lot of those restaurants where it's great at lunch and at dinner it's not so good. Mm -hmm. So here, what's great is if you come in at 6 o'clock, it's just the same as at 12 o'clock. One thing I remember when we talked to you earlier in the year, no microwaves, is that correct? Uh, absolutely correct. There's one thing we get from microwaves. If you have one, everybody will find a reason to put something in it. So there's only one thing you do in a restaurant, make sure it never comes in. So everything's made from scratch. So we got competition barbecue made per meal period. If you order brisket, we take it out, just like you would cut a prime rib and we'd slice it to order and then put it back in the warmer. So you're getting fresh barbecue the same way I would serve it to a competition to a judge. The only thing different is we're not going to stick it in parsley in a styrofoam box, but we're going to serve it on plates here. We don't throw, we don't have throwaway silverware unless you take it to go. Um, everything comes on plates, so it's a really nice restaurant. All my sides are made from scratch. The the beans we get in dry. We soak those and start cooking them. There's there's no comparison from fresh cooked 
beans compared to taking something out of a can. So cans are something we really don't like here. Uh, potato salad's made from scratch. Uh, we go through over 450 pounds of potato salad, but because it's important, we make sure that that's a priority. So french fries, french fries, we cut french fries every day. I can't begin to tell you, we go through 300 pounds of french fries a day currently. Wow. So we blanch those, get them ready, finish them off in the fryer. And the fun thing is like ketchup. We do a chipotle ketchup. So our little twists on everything is what has given us an advantage in the marketplace. Besides, everything's made from scratch. Who wants to go to a restaurant where it's pre-bought everything? If you pre-buy french fries, they're hollow in the center. Yeah, they have their place on certain restaurants, but we're not going to serve hollow fries. Our fries take like potato. I was going to say, that's pretty labor intensive. Dude. It is. I have one guy, seven, well, I have one guy does five days a week and another person, so it's one, it takes one eight-hour shift to get it all done for that day. That's amazing. Well, and I think it shows in kind of the quality of the food and the success that you've had as a restaurant. So. You know, I had so many barbecue guys say, oh, well, you can't wrap a brisket. You can't do the same way as competition. And there was one thing that always stuck in my mind. There's only one reason why I will do competition barbecue. It's for my customer. And by doing that, it separated us from everybody else. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So tell us more about some of the expansion plans that you have with the bar, the, the current location, and also the one out in Overland Park, which I'm excited to see coming. Oh yeah, I'm gonna tell you two things. Remember, you said what makes it successful. We talked about that. The other thing is process improvement. You gotta make sure you're always working on your restaurant to get better. I just hired Jennifer, the best bartender in the city, to start a craft cocktail program for this restaurant and roll right into the next restaurant. So things like you know, frozen ice cubes to go in your uh, old fashioned is important to step away from cubed ice. So all these things and techniques into the bar, I hired the best person in the city so we're not only going to implement that here and go into the next place. You've got to always take a look at your establishment and make sure you're doing process improvement. Number two is when you open up a restaurant, make sure that you love what you're doing. Okay, everybody says, oh, you know, you work a lot. And I always say, I don't work at all. I'm on vacation. For 30 years, I dreamed of opening a restaurant. Every day I come in, I feel like I'm in, on vacation. I will second that sentiment because I owned a bar and grill for a while. While I love to eat, Cooking and running that was not my passion, and it, it just it didn't work out. And then it became a job, yep. and it got too hard and burned you out. Oh, it is the only time in my life I had anxiety. So. Oh, well, just so you know, I love coming to work. All right. Our, All right. our business has, has increased five times versus when we first opened up the door and what yeah. our business plan was. So Let's talk about expansion. Now, here's some more passionate stuff you're going to get from me. I'm going to have another burn it. Oh, I think you need to keep eating while I'm talking, man. They look so good. Um, the first thing we're going to do is we have an expansion on the north side of the building. We're adding two SP500s, a Southern Pride 500s, mm -hmm. and we're adding another walk-in and then also a little place for people to eat out there. Closing that, so that takes care of some of the capacity issues that we have because of the amount of business that we've increased. We're also opening up on the west side, taking over the salon next door. We're adding more storage, so we're going to do 400 feet of storage, another mm -hmm. walk-in, and to be able to hold our uh, beverage, our liquor, our beer, uh, paper goods over there. Then we're adding 45 seats. Okay. We've got another bar with a garage door that comes down on top of the bar, which okay. is really cool. So if you're outside, we're also adding a patio. 
Um, on the patio, we'll have about 45 seats and we'll have seats around the bar. So when it's nice, we open up the bar, the bartender takes care of you, you can sit outside while you're hanging out at the bar, wow. you can watch TV, it's great. So the restaurant next door will be mirrored just like this one and okay. decor-wise. Now the other great thing about opening this, this cuts down on our weight keeps people from hanging out in the parking lot, get them in here, mm -hmm. and we get them fed, or you can have cocktails on the uh, patio, and as soon as we call you, we bring it to your table. So no more worrying about, oh, what am I gonna do for 15 minutes? So we know some of the process improvements we need to do. Cut down on the weight, and then get people in to make sure they're not walking around. Now with that deck, is there a second level, or did it just kind of look like that in no. the renderings? Now, when I first started off, it was a two-tier deck. The only reason why it was a two-tier deck is because of the grade in the front. It's not one on top of each other. Okay. So all it was was a step up onto the second part of the deck. Since then, we decided with my designer, which Realm uh, is my design company, we decided to do a patio to extend what I have already and wrap it all around in the front of the salon. And since what we have to do is dig down, there'll probably be a step down, and then it's gonna be a patio which will work out great. Okay. Um, we thought that the look of the patio would be much better than putting wood out there. So it was a great decision. Now how about the Overland Park location? I know you're taking over what was the original Hayworths, and old man Hayworth lives across from my neighborhood. He's got a great place out there. What are you doing there? Any, any big changes to that building or clean it up? What, what do you got? Wow, this is going to be a long conversation now. Um, let me just tell you what you see today will be completely different later. Okay. Um, we will do an outside patio. We've got 55 seats, I think, for the outside patio. We have approximately 200 seats inside. Oh, wow. You're going to still see an open kitchen, the same feel that you get here. We're not going to change that because it works. Mm -hmm. People enjoy it. We, I enjoy it. I mm -hmm. love what I do. You can see where, whatever's going on anywhere. Absolutely. Food entertainment with the open kitchen. Mm -hmm. That's going to happen. We're going to completely redo the whole parking lot. We're going to actually pull it all up, regrade it, and then re-pour it. Every cement around the building will be replaced, plus the back. We're going to add, uh, this is really neat. We've got a couple of things we're doing there that we don't have here. I actually have a butcher room oh, that wow. you can see. We're going to open up a glass panel outside, or if you're in the to-go area, you can see the guys cleaning briskets, making homemade sausage, making homemade uh, hamburger, grinding the hamburger, so you'll see all this stuff getting done. So we have no secrets, everything's done from scratch, so it's always a fun thing to check out while you're waiting. The to-go area will be double, mm -hmm. and the other thing we did is we put a built-in banquet kitchen in the back. So instead of just building 250 seats inside, we decided to do 200 seats and then the 50 outside when we can use it. Okay. So it'll be a very usable patio. And then we put a banquet kitchen that can handle up to 3,000 to 4,000 people. So we're ready there, and uh, that's probably about it. So really, everything gets replaced. We'll probably put in a new roof, new HVA system. All the walls come down. We'll put them all back up the way I want it. So very cool. And, and what's the tentative start date? You know, the spring of next year is what we're okay. shooting for. You know, I've been saying March and April, but you know, construction guys, it can run. <laughs> you know, it depends, right? Uh -huh. It depends on weather and a lot of other things. So I'm really hoping for March or April. Would be happy in April, maybe even May. I'd be happy, uh -huh. um, but I I don't want to open it later than May. So let's talk about the food a little bit. One thing I came here wanting to know all about are the burn-ins. How do you do them? How do you get them so consistent? What can you share with us? 
Wow, that's, you know, that's a, it's a double-edged sword here. Everybody wants burn ends, but not all the time we have them. Mm -hmm. We do have it on core menu items, so it is available on a brisket plate, a Mr. Burns. Um, so if you're dying for burn ends, go with those two things. Uh, the brisket plates get sliced brisket burn ends, and then you just add like two ribs to it. I'll tell you, that's my favorite when I come in. How, how do we right prepare here. our burn ends? We do it the same way as competition. Um, what makes those burn ends so good is when I actually wrap it, I mean, it's all good. It stays on top where the au jus on it. So when it's cooked, it's cooked to perfection to where it's like melt, melt in your mouth. Mm -hmm. We call it filet de brisket. Okay, so that's our burn ends. The only and thing that competes with this taste in my mind is a filet cooked perfectly. Yeah, see, why have a filet when you can have a brisket? So when we cook it, we actually separate the brisket. We only do whole briskets here. We do not do briskets separate, uh, separated. The quality of level does not meet up the Q39 standards. So while it's really hard for people to understand, well, why don't you cook more because you know you're busy? Well, briskets tend, you start off with a 14 pound brisket. By the time you're done, it's about six and a half to seven pounds. When you take off the, the point of the brisket, which that's all we use. Mm -hmm. Some places cut up flats and you're wondering why it's dry and then you get a moist piece and dry piece. It's because you're cutting up the whole brisket. That's not burn ends. Burn ends is definitely the point of the brisket. So we separate it every time while we're cooking. We take that and we take the fat off. Then we take it, season up a little bit, and we put it on a wood fire grill. We char up the backside so you get a char flavor from the smoke. So what I've gotten is when you take juices and drop it down on that oak wood, it shoots up, we call them flavor bombs. Flavors up those burn ends, then we take it off. We use the flattest part of the burn ends for, I mean, the flattest part of the points, mm -hmm. and we use that for burn ends. The round portion, we use that for sliced burn end sandwiches. So that's what makes it so good. It and those, never hits as you, it keeps its flavor, it barks up nice. That is my probably other favorite dish here is that burn end sandwich. Just the plain, straight in burn end sandwich. It's awesome. Burn end sandwich is great. So you use the round part of the burn end. So when you slice it, you put it on a sandwich. The reason why I did that is I came up in Texas. When you're in Texas, it's called lean or fatty is what you want. Mm -hmm. So that's the fatty part of the brisket, which is us in Kansas City is the burn in or the point. Mm -hmm. The one thing that I like about when you're in Texas, I'd rather have a sliced burn in sandwich instead of cubed, only because if I'm wearing a suit or some nice clothes and that burn in, which is delicious, falls down on my suit, it might be an expensive lunch by the time I get that suit cleaned. So let me ask you this now. You've gotten a lot of good press. And do you read your reviews? Do you do you get do you look at them much? Do you look at any of the negative ones? How do you how do you deal with reviews? You know that's a great great question. And a lot of restaurants seem to like swing and miss on this one. Um, first of all, we we have a great partnership with Yelp. I also make sure I check my Yelp reviews daily. I can tell you what my past seven reviews off the top of my head are where we need to improve. What did we do wrong? What Did we have the right server on the floor? Did we make sure that we communicated to our guests? You know, So it tells you where you can improve. I also go to TripAdvisor, another great place for reviews. And the third place is Google. And Google sends over, they do, it's kind of like a, a quick blurb. I was here, this is it, anywhere between one to five stars. So we constantly do process improvement by looking at those reviews. Now, do we have some people who come in that don't understand full service and fast casual? 
Absolutely. That's probably our number you kinda, one. You kind of kind of let them go, don't you? Some things I do, <laughs> but for the most part, there's always something you can take away that makes sense. You know, if we made a mistake, let's go back and check out our process. Maybe I have a new employee. Maybe we need more training in that area. Maybe I have a new saute cook. Did he season my macaroni and cheese to perfection, or did he just season it? So, um, so these reviews are good to help my restaurant improve. With the consistency, how do you, how are you able to keep that up? That's one thing. When I first came, I think it was in November or October of 14 after you'd opened up, and I was like, this is so good. I gotta come back here because I don't think they can keep the consistency up. <laughs> that was, and that these, was a very common thing people were saying. These burn-ins that I'm having here in front of me are just as good as they were that day. How do you do that? How are you gonna do that with the new restaurant? You know what, we've got people right now shadowing, uh, and we'll be hiring a lot of people to work here for three months before we even open up the next place. Um, I probably have every sous chef lined up for the next place already, which is much greater than I had opening this restaurant with me and a brand new guy, mm -hmm. and we we're learning together. So that was very hard. The next restaurant, I think, is going to be a lot easier. The other way to keep consistency is having actually a prep cook team. Mm -hmm. I've got three butchers, two butchers every day, and I've got prep people, which I have five prep people right now. And so they're constantly making the potato salad over and over again, following my recipe. And because of that, that's what makes it so consistent. Is, is consistency the hardest part of running a restaurant, or what is the, the most difficult part? Well, consistency is one of the most important parts because nobody wants to come here for a great burger one day, a bad burger the next, and a good burger the next day. But it's got to be excellent at all times. You know, making sure you set the bar for the cooks. It's always good to set the bar even higher than what you want because if it deviates a little bit, you're still in the excellent range. Constantly moderate monitoring it, um, having an expediter when the food comes up, we assemble it on the line, you'll see a bunch of people on the front line and bring it to the table. That's a second step to ensure that we've got great, good looking food, uh, making sure that it was done right. Now in your personal opinion, do you think barbecue is what you're best at cooking or what other styles do you think you may be even better than barbecue at? Well, let's just say that I'm in barbecue right now <laughs> and let's just say we're going to keep it that way. Okay. Um, I love anything off the grill. So whether it's indirect cooking for traditional barbecue, uh -huh. or if it's indirect cooking with grill cooking, which I consider that a little bit like Memphis. Okay. Um, but I love anything off the grill. I'm okay. a steak guy. Um, we've got. Uh, oh, I got something really cool. I'll let you. I'll let some things out of the bag right, for my new right. for my new menu. Okay. Right. Let's talk about my Let's new talk menu about coming up. Go right ahead. Okay, we're not we'll there yet. It. We might actually implement it the same time we open up the new restaurant, but I'm okay. hoping in the first part of January. Um, we've got wild boar. Wow. A rack of wild boar coming in. We've cooked it. it was excellent. It's gonna make it on the menu. Uh huh. I've got our sausage burger, but we're calling it the triple threat. So it's a sausage patty cooked on that oak grill, topped with pulled pork, uh -huh. pork belly, zesty sauce, and apple slaw. So if you're crazy about the burn end burger, which we've made it all the way from Zagat to Washington Post, get ready for the triple threat, because this baby's coming. All right, I'm in here. I'm in here. I love it. I love <laughs> it. And that's some other things we're going to do is we're going to add a shrimp appetizer. So it's a bacon-wrapped shrimp, but it's with a chili seasoning served with their chipotle cilantro sauce and a jalapeno lime vinaigrette slaw. So it is dynamite, fresh, fun, innovative. You know, it's gonna be just, it's gonna be a big hit. 
very cool. So there's a couple things that are coming out. I probably have like about it. another uh, uh, four or five. We're revamping our salads. Um, so we're really excited about the new menu also. Another, um, another way, how do you stay on top of your restaurant? How do you keep improving? Offer new things for guests to come back so they can try some of that new stuff. Now, does something necessarily have to fall off the menu? Do you take something off that just isn't like, well, that's that's our lowest seller? How do you do, how do you determine, or do you just add? No, we'll go ahead and pull off either our lowest seller or we want to try something new. Mm -hmm. Most of our sellers are all big sellers. I mean, we really everything that's on the menu, it's it's a big seller. But the triple threat that comes on, we'll probably replace. I don't know. We'll take a look and see what our, our sellers are there. But if you haven't tried one of our burgers, you better come on in and try that out. So now you said you're always working, but when you do get out, where do you like to go eat? Where, where do you like to try? What's your favorite dishes in town? You know what? I go to every restaurant possible, every new restaurant, anything in town, because I pick up something somewhere. Okay. Last night I ate at North. Uh -huh. If you haven't been to North, it's in Leewood. Uh -huh. Great Italian uh, restaurant. I think they do a phenomenal job. Their service is great. Uh, the food was fantastic. Um, so I like to travel to all these different restaurants, and I pick something up every time I go, whether it's something regarding their craft cocktail list or whether it's their wine. How do they sell wine? Do they do it by ounces, six ounce, eight ounce, and full bottles, which I do here. Um, so I love going to different restaurants. And what do you think KC is best known as besides barbecue? Do you think there's one thing that people know KC for food-wise other than barbecue? You know, I always tell people there's two reasons why somebody comes to a city. To do business and eat barbecue. <laughs> but I got to tell you, Kansas City has grown in the culinary field. You're watching some great restaurants pop up. Jack's just opened up down on the plaza. I think they do a fantastic job. You've got... Uh, I told you North opened up, which is dynamite. You've got all these great restaurants opening up, and Kansas City is now have a great culture for culinary. And I see that bar continuing to raise up and up and up. Hopefully I was part of that process, but I've seen some great restaurants open up. I think Kansas City does a phenomenal job in the culinary. So with those new startups, what do you think are some of the main, reason, main reasons startup restaurants fail? Uh, it's called commitment. Okay. I mean, that's it. I mean, you know, you got to understand what your concept's about. You got to make sure that the price point's there. You got to make sure the environment's there. But you got to follow through in the commitment of the quality of food and service constantly. You got to stay on top of it. You got to love what you do. You got to talk to your customers in the restaurant. What happens is owners and people come in to open up the restaurant. It was so hard to get it open. In the first two weeks, they worked their tail off doing 100 hours. They get burned out. Next thing you know is, oh, I hired the GM to do it. It's his problem now. Well, it's not the general manager's problem. It's the owner's problem. The owner, it shouldn't even be a problem. It should be in there taking care of the restaurant. You're repeating my history. Now, what happened? <laughs> so then the owners disappear. The food drops. The quality level drops. The GM takes care of the front of the house. The chef in the back becomes a line cook because all of a sudden the revenue starts dropping. So instead of toughening it out and making sure that you have the right staffing guideline for the right amount of revenue in, they don't do that. The other thing is, is I've watched a lot of restaurants do a great job in the first three months and all of a sudden the, rest, the revenue goes up. But what restaurants fail to do is when the revenue goes up, the staffing levels go up at the same time. I'll give you an example. When I first opened up this restaurant, I had 35 employees. Today, I have 115 employees plus 10 managers. 
That's right, 115 and 190 seat restaurant. Why do we do that? We serve the proper service, the proper food runners, the amount of cooks that need to be online to continue what you said. There's no way he's gonna keep up with it. Well, it is when I increase my staffing level all the way up to 115 people. Mm -hmm. So that commitment, you have to follow through with it. If you increase your staffing levels that you go, you will, you will continue to do revenue growth as long as your product and your service is there. Now, if you have a spike in revenue and you say, oh my gosh, we're just making a ton of money, but you're not increasing the, the staffing levels, um, what's going to happen is people are going to get tired because the service goes down, the quality of food goes down, and then all of a sudden the revenue drops back down. And then it hits a happy medium. Now, if all you want to do is have a happy medium restaurant, then that's the way to go. Or it'll continue to drop back down to where the owner says, what happened, GM? How come I'm going to close my restaurant? So the commitment needs to be there. If you want to own a restaurant, do it right. And if you do it right, stay on top of it and make sure that the restaurant is running exactly how you set it up to. Great information. Uh, training programs. Let me just tell you this. Okay. This is a big deal. We have a training program here, not only for the host, server, food runner, and uh, our to-go people. You have to go through the special training of each position. So there is an orientation, a training that they go through, and there's a training on the floor. They have to sign off on it, take tests. By the time they're done, they are allowed to work on the floor. So training is a big deal. Acclimating people to understand what your concept is. How many places have you gone to after, let's see, six months they've been open, and you say, well, what do you recommend on the menu? Tell me about this fish. Uh, I don't know. How's the soup of the day? Uh, let me go check on that. Well, through our training program, and then through our lineups that we have, for our pre-meals, uh, we make sure that all our servers are up to date. They know the story. They understand what Q39 is. They understand the story of Q39. They understand who Rob McGee is. How did he get into barbecue? How many grand champions did he win? What makes this restaurant so special? Competition barbecue. You know, it's a chef-driven restaurant. Things are made from scratch here. There's no microwave. This is the message not only that I'm talking to you about, it's my servers telling every customer when they're going to work in. here. This is what you're signing up for. You bet. And then when we get in the newspaper and things like that, we let our associates know, hey, great job. This is why we're in the newspaper. And get ready because we're going to have a spike in revenue. <laughs> Four people. Well, let's end it with some rapid fire questions. This has been a great interview. Totally appreciate your time. I got a couple quick questions for you. Okay. Just come at me with what you got. So your least favorite thing to do in the kitchen. I don't know. <laughs> well, that's a hard one. I probably don't like to wash dishes anymore. All right. Wash dishes. Most underrated food to cook with? Probably brisket. Brisket or ribs? Both. <laughs> Judge's I plate. You. Judge's plate. Oh, you got to get a brisket plate with ribs. I think we nailed that one already. And then, in your opinion... What's the best item on the Q39 menu? Wow, you know, that's kind of loaded because <laughs> what we take pride in is to make sure everything cons is consistent. I can tell you that... Um, what, are you, what are you nibbling on and back? Today or yesterday? <laughs> our pick three uh, plate is our number one seller. So people pick the three top meats that they want. The most amount of meat I go through in the kitchen is brisket, without a doubt. Um, but our homemade sausage is right up there, uh, and our ribs are huge. Rob McGee, Q39, thank you very much for joining us on the Kansas City Food Guys podcast. Man, this has been fantastic. All right, thank now you, you got to eat these cold burnt ends. No, no, I'm, not, I'm just going to eat them up. I'm Boy, you were snacking worry. all through it. I don't know how you did that. Boy, I didn't hear one slur out of your mouth with that burnt end getting chewed. 
Rob's right. I was eating burn-ins throughout the entire interview, and somehow I made it through without slurring any of the interview, hopefully. Eating those burn-ins during the interview was a bit difficult. Uh, I didn't want to be rude, but I didn't want the burn-ins to go to waste either. So I'll say those burn-ins were as good uh, when I sat down with Rob as they were the first time I went to Q39. So again, if you haven't been to Q39, you need to get there. You need to try it out. It's one of the best barbecues in Kansas City at this point. Uh, I'd suggest, like Rob said, have the judge's plate or um, my favorite, the burn-in sandwich. Just to give you a kind of a little after-the-show information, Rob and I were sitting there after the, the interview, and the table next to us, because we did the interview right in the restaurant, Uh, They were from Florida, and they were talking about uh, they wish they had tried the coleslaw. Well, Rob went back and got him some coleslaw, and they were in complete amazement after they dug into it. They said it was the best slaw they'd ever had. So try that apple coleslaw out if you're a slaw fan. So just to wrap up, um, again, if uh, you want to leave us a comment or some feedback, find us anywhere on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, follow us there, leave a comment, or shoot me an email at steve at kcfoodguys.com. Also, if you really like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. It would really mean a lot to us. So I'll wrap up here, and just to give you kind of a teaser for episode two, we sat down with Todd Johns from Plowboys in Blue Springs. And then after that, we'll probably get into some non-barbecue restaurants, uh, or maybe Fred and I will sit down and do some back and forth on restaurants around town. Lastly, if you haven't already done so, and you want a few good deals on uh, restaurants around town, sign up for our KC Food Guys Insiders deal. Just go to the website, and over on the right, you'll see a a place to sign up. Um, And if you are a restaurateur um, and you want to get a deal on the Insiders page, just shoot me an email and I'll get you a hookup. So until next time, Kansas City, eat up.